From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I don't want to pretend that the God of the universe isn't terrifying. I think that God is. I know it in prayer sometimes that I'm scared of what God will call me to do and call me to be. And I think we all talk about that in sort of romantic ways of, oh, God was calling me and I finally consented. I finally submitted. I did whatever that call was. But I wanted to grapple with like how terrifying that can really be. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Natalie Wiggs-Stevenson. She teaches theology and directs the contextual education program at Emmanuel College in Toronto, Canada. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Transgressive Devotion, Theology as Performance Art. Natalie Wiggs-Stevenson, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, David. So I want to start our conversation in the middle of your book. You are at First Baptist Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And you are given the opportunity as part of your pastoral presence there to give the prayers of the people. And it goes by different names in different traditions, Mm -hmm. but I I would know it from my tradition as the prayers of the people. It's a chance to bring petitions before the divine presence. And it's the only time that you have a chance to do this. And it's in 2008, just after the successful election of Barack Obama and the defeat of John McCain. And you make some choices when you're there about the kind of prayer that you give. And as a way of getting into the conversation and as a way for my listeners to begin to get to know you, what were some of the things specifically that you were balancing in that moment about that prayer? Hmm. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. So I am a very rare uh, breed, (laughs) Southern Baptist female minister, and I was trying to hold together the space of being in a fairly conservative, highly Republican church with my own jubilation at the fact that Barack Obama had been elected. I had a strong personal connection to that in that like him, I'm also biracial. Unlike him, I completely present as white and uh, he presents as black. But I was trying to hold together that jubilation, the fear, the immense fear I had at that moment that he and his family were in danger. I think we were all pretty scared at that moment in many ways. And being in a Southern Baptist congregation, trying to think through sort of the legacy of racism. This is a denomination that was created out of its attempt to preserve slavery. So trying to think through, and I'd only lived in the South for a a few years. And so just trying to understand all of those pieces together and pray into that with the community in a way that wouldn't alienate the Republicans, although it did some of them, but in a way that could hold us together as a community um, Yeah, in prayer for the new president. 
You used a phrase a moment ago that I want to circle back to. You say presents as. You said that Barack Obama presents as African-American, that you present as white. I think that for some of my listeners, that may be a new concept. And so I'd like Mm. to linger there for a moment. When you use this phrase presenting as a particular racial identity, how are you understanding that? I will say that language changes so often for me because when you're a biracial person, multiracial person, and you cross different kinds of lines, I'll say for myself, my experience of my own embodiment has changed. As a child, I'd have, and growing up in the South of England, I had a very strong sense that I was biracial. The Black side of my family, the African side, escaped apartheid in the 60s. My white family are very working class bricklayers, white family from a small village in the South of England. And so there was, and I was like the brownest kid in my school. I got called the N-word as a kid. And then I moved to Canada and like my skin changed color without it changing color. And then I moved to the Northern US and then I moved to the Southern US. And each step of the way, the different racial constructions reconstituted me differently. And so sometimes I use the language of present as, sometimes I use the language as easily read as, meaning other people will interpret me this way. My own journey in relation to this has been trying to embrace the African side of my family and that history, but then in the last decade, also trying to really grapple with the white privilege I live with and the tensions between those as well in different contexts when I get read differently. It's always complicated. So I haven't found the language yet for explaining what I am because it really depends on what city I am and how sunny it's been and how tan I am. It's always different how people read me. So when you were giving these prayers there at First Baptist Church in Nashville, Tennessee, I know that you're not clairvoyant, but to the extent that you're able, how do you think that congregation in that moment, as you were giving these prayers right after the election of Barack Obama, how do you perceive that they were reading you in that moment? Mm. Well, to them, I was white. I mean, racially, I was white. I was a young woman, which is not something they frequently see in the pulpit. I was speaking like a Baptist minister. (laughs) I'm a bit of a pulpit pounder. (laughs) And so that too, I talk in the book about how you can play against what people expect, play into it. And all of these come with different ways of being perceived and different forms of power as well. So I was definitely being perceived as a young white woman who was coming with (laughs) flames, (laughs) flames and then the righteousness of God, which was probably quite confusing for some people. I saw my role there in many ways as being able to bolster the people who are more interested in pursuing justice and something outside of the ecclesial norms. And so after that prayer, a number of those folks came up to me and said, thank you. They never, they, they've never they never got to pray about racism in church. I know since then, some others have prayed from the pulpit about racism, and that's been pretty exciting as well. So it was a spiritual thing. I wanted the pulpit to hold that. I wanted that at the front of the church. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Natalie Wiggs-Stevenson. She teaches theology and directs the contextual education program at Emmanuel College in Toronto, Canada. We're talking today about her recent book, Transgressive Devotion, Theology as Performance Art. You mentioned that you wanted the pulpit to resound with these kind of righteous flames. Can you give us just a little overview of what it was that you preached that day? What was some of the what were some of the themes and language that you brought in and was it did it land more like a traditional prayer or was it transgressive in terms of the way that it functioned as a performance in that moment? 
Well, David, I didn't preach that day. <laughs> I never preached from that pulpit. I'll remind you, I was a young woman. <laughs> I preached in services that were smaller services with 15 people before the main service. I never preached in the service that had 700 people at it. Uh, I always wondered if that would happen, but it never did. I presided when the Festival of Homiletics was in the church. Again, I'm a young white woman, so that's good to put me at the front of the church when you've got the Festival of Homiletics come through. But no, I didn't preach that day, and that was the only time I ever did the prayers. So I can't remember what the sermon was about. <laughs> I just know the mood shift shifted when I got in there, for sure. Well, and so thank you for that correction. And I think that it's important for my listeners to have heard the correction that you just did, that even though you were at times positioned at the front of the church, there was a real barrier to your really being a leader in that congregation in many ways. And so from the standpoint of the prayer that you gave that day, if you could give us a quick overview of what that prayer involved. Well, it <laughs> it involved terrified preparation. It was a written prayer. It was far too long. I may say this in the book, like <laughs> with hindsight, I was definitely throw, swinging for the fences with it. It was much longer than a typical pastoral prayer because I was trying to achieve that balance of speaking on behalf to God of many people in the community and holding us together while doing that. I felt that responsibility acutely, but I also felt this great responsibility to history and racial relations. My sense of responsibility got way too big. So it took me a long time to write it. I prayed with it in preparation for it. I spent time praying for both of the candidates and I was incredibly careful with my words. It's one of the things I've probably edited the most in my life, except this book. This book has gone through so many edits. That prayer might be second. That begins to get us into what you're doing here in your book, Transgressive Devotion. In that moment there in the pulpit, you found yourself, this is going to be my language, not yours. Mm -hmm. So feel free to correct me. But my reading of that moment is you found yourself in a kind of unwanted, unaccustomed place. You were there as a kind of rupture or an aberration. You were a woman in a space that, at least for that congregation, shouldn't necessarily be occupied by a woman. You're a woman that, to use your language earlier, presented as white, but you also, I imagine at that time, you were clear that you had an identification as biracial and that you were engaging with both these sides of your family. And so in many ways, what you say in your book, Transgressive Devotion, is that as the congregation reported to you how they were reading you, they kept re-narrating you. Mm -hmm. And I'd be interested, just for my listeners, if you could give us some examples of how they re-narrated you, not just in that moment, but maybe in other moments as well during your time at First Baptist Church. Hmm. It helped them, I think, that I was an academic. So when I came out with kooky theological things, well, it's it's less threatening when it's coming from an academic somehow because they know that we're weird. So I think that helped and it was like a helpful cover in some situations. But what that meant was I got branded as a significant liberal, which I am. Um, but anytime I departed from that, I would be admitted to jovial conversations because that became the moment where like I was breaking what they thought I was. It helped them that I was married, uh, married to a man and a white man, cis man. And I think that made me safe as well. But I didn't have kids. Uh, I was going through a long journey of infertility. I didn't have children. And I think that made me a bit confusing to them because I wasn't necessarily open about that with them. My husband, whenever there was a potluck, he brought 
the dish. He made it. And that was very, at times, problematic. Because <laughs> it meant I wasn't a real wife. Then they want to treat you as a, a wife, as a woman. And it's just... It's always slipping. It's always changing. And again, like that, how are people choosing to constitute you in that moment? But again, I found real, com- I, I don't want to slam the church. I found real community there. And you know, there's a reason I felt the call to be ordained there. I, I encountered God in that place in significant ways. It'll always be a part of me, no matter how far I move from it. Well, and that leads me to ask, in those moments when you were at the potluck and your husband, Tyler, had brought the dish and you hadn't, and your perception was they were reading you as not quite doing what a wife should do. So I'm not sure what your experience of that was. I've known you for a number of years. We should probably disclose that, that we both went to graduate school together. And so I have a sense of how you would answer this question, but I'm interested both because I haven't talked to you in a while and also for the sake of my listeners. I guess that there's both a moment of fear and a moment Mm. of enjoyment at transgressing someone else's expectations of being Mm -hmm. what they didn't expect you to be. And if you can recall in those moments when you were transgressing the expectations there of the congregation in First Baptist Church, how would you dial that spectrum? Were you more on the fear side, more on the enjoyment side? Was it a pleasant mix in the middle or an unpleasant mix in the middle? Like, how would you describe that moment? I'd say there weren't actually many times I felt fear, except when I put the Obama sticker on my uh, car in the midst of going through the ordination process, then I, I've definitely felt fear and anxiety around that. And probably for me, it was more anger and really depending on where I was at that moment in my own life. If I was really stressed, if I was writing my exams or something, the anger would be a little bit more acute because I didn't have the capacity to deal in that moment. Just, oh, why are they like this? Why don't they understand that the world's not like this? Isn't how God, a little bit of a tirade going on in my mind and then being just incredibly socially awkward on the outside. But then the pleasure moments, those are the great ones because you'd be standing at the table and then say, oh, Natalie, this is delicious. What's in it? And I'd say, oh, I don't know, go ask Tyler. And I can't help but be, <laughs> like, it's maybe a bit perverse how much I could enjoy those moments of, I don't know. <laughs> and I actually like to cook, but I don't think anyone at the church would have known that <laughs> because I definitely played like someone who, know, who whose husband did all the cooking. Okay, he does like 90% of the cooking, but yeah, that would be, that would definitely be fun. And then fun too, when he played it as well, that was a, we, that was a partnership. We both had a desire to transcend some gender norms there and have each other on that, you know, because the flip side is when I'm not being a real woman, he's not being a real man. And I think in some ways, you know, that, oh, I was going to say maybe that's harder. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> but definitely in a context like that, if he's not a real man, that's really hard for him to navigate to. And he did that very willingly with me. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Natalie Wade stevenson She teaches theology and directs the Contextual Education Program at Emanuel College in Toronto, Canada. We're talking today about her recent book, Transgressive Devotion, Theology as Performance Art. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. 
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Dr. Natalie Wig-Stevenson. She teaches theology and directs the Contextual Education Program at Emanuel College in Toronto, Canada. We're talking about her recent book, Transgressive Devotion, Theology as Performance Art. I want to get a little bit into the structure of your book, Transgressive Mm -hmm. Devotion, because it's really a layering of three different kinds of books. On Mm -hmm. one level, you are talking about a number of different pieces of performance art. And I'll be honest with you, as I was reading some of these descriptions of some of these performance art pieces, I found myself oftentimes having very physical and physicalized reactions to the extent where I, I felt my skin tighten and prickle. I felt myself get a little nauseous at one point. These are not comfortable pieces of art. They're doing perhaps what art should do. That is to provoke us to think differently about the things that we take for granted. So that one level is you're doing reflections on those performance art pieces. There's a second layer where you are talking about your experience with a Sunday night study group at Mm -hmm. First Baptist Church, where you are doing ethnographic research with this group. You're both helping them in your role as an academic theologian, but you're also in some senses studying them, and you're reporting Mm -hmm. back about some of the interactions that you have with them. So that's the second layer. And then there's a third layer that mediates those two, where you are doing really really dedicated, close readings, theological reflections. You are trying to think at the edge of what Christian discourse is right now. And that's functioning both in an academic sense, but also a deeply personal sense, because you're narrating in those portions of the book, not only a sense of wanting to find a way to speak theology differently, but also to speak out of what you describe at several points as, and this is going to be my word, not yours, a kind of crisis of faith, where you Mm. have felt that you and God in some ways have parted ways, at least in a traditional sense. Mm -hmm. And so I want to ask, first of all, just about the kind of structure of the book, those three levels. Why did you create the book this way? And how did you come to understand that this was the structure that the book needed? Yes, and I can tell you there's a couple more layers in there as well. Just There's way too much happening in this book. I think I'm going to spend the next five to ten years just writing articles to try to explain what happened. Because there's also the layer of queer temporality and trying to think about how we relate to the history of Christianity differently using understandings of time that are a little bit disruptive of our normal ways of thinking about time, our normate ways of thinking. So I started with knowing I had different pieces I wanted to fit together. I began with a set of performance artworks and everything that's in this book is there because it's had very personal meaning for me in my own encounters with the divine. So one was, as I was coming out of conservative evangelicalism, one of the stepping stones there was my undergraduate degree in art history, especially my uh, studies of performance art. And those were revolutionary for sort of disrupting how I thought about human relations, about reality, about beauty, all of that at play. And that really began to shape my theological imagination as I emerged from my undergrad into doing my MDiv. And so art always stayed with me in significant ways on this journey. The second part of the doctrines, I had chosen to go to Vanderbilt, which is where we know each other from, in part because I hadn't gone deep into the history of Christianity. I'd done all the sort of like contemporary progressive stuff in my MDiv, but I thought, I've never really read Augustine. And I knew I got my hands on those 
qualifying exams we did also were just like we had to read 150 books in one year or just something ridiculous and get a grasp of the whole Christian history the whole western Christian history and much more of the contemporary sphere than I will ever need to know but that was so deeply formative that time there made me believe deeply in the power of doctrine which I hadn't prior to that time and so that began to shape my theological imagination as well and really value doctrine as that was a big part of our formal education. And then what was the third one you named? The crisis of faith. Yes. So that was the third one. (laughs) It was just right after I defended my dissertation and I woke up and realized I just, I woke up with a vacuum. There was no God there anymore. I wouldn't have been able to say how I recognized God every morning when I woke up, but I woke up one morning and and there was no God. And I had this sense that it was important to stay with that not knowing. I had a number of well-meaning friends say things like, well, have you read this or have you started this prayer practice? Here's how you can really come out of a crisis of faith. And first I took a six-month sabbatical from church. I didn't go to church for six months. Again, that's like going to church as a formative practice of theological imagination is so very important to me. So that wasn't just like going for brunch. That was a huge thing to give up church for six months. And I just sat waiting for God, basically. And in that sitting, I sat with some of these questions that were really hard and they shaped the book. So this first question of what does it feel like to be forgotten by God? I felt like I had forgotten God, God had forgotten me. And so that shapes the first chapter and it shapes the attempt to respond that I articulate as a theological anthropology in the final chapter. Those two go together. Is this all true? How is this true? That shapes another pairing. There's just these questions that I was grappling with at the affective level. That's what I wanted to do in the book. I wanted to take those questions, use the performance artworks to open up the pieces about them that we're not supposed to say or inquire into and sit with those things. So not to make claim, you know, the first chapter is diagnosing God with dementia. I'm not saying that God has dementia, but I want to grapple with the question of what does it feel like to be forgotten by God? And and the Christian traditions have resources for that. They do. That's what people have grappled with throughout Christian history. And they've come up with these answers. And I wanted to sit with the not answers for a while by using the answers. If that Does that make sense? It does. And one of the things that comes out in what you just said is this was a moment of, in many ways, personal and theological vulnerability for you, this kind of waking up one morning and feeling a God void. But what I really like about what you're doing in Transgressive Devotion is that you don't leave it there, but you also Mm -hmm. invite the reader to imagine what it would be like to use doctrinal theology to imagine vulnerabilities in our concepts of God. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm, I'm using my words, so feel free to correct me. But, you know, you just mentioned imagining in that first chapter, what would it be like to have a God that only lives in the present of eternity, but doesn't mm-hmm. have a past that can't remember us, a God with dementia? The, that's profound and terrifying for mm-hmm. me as a reader. But it was also, you didn't just invite the reader or inhabit this yourself, you also invited, in some ways, that group at First Baptist to wrestle with some of these questions. So let's take a moment. What was it like to bring some of these provocative questions into that group at First Baptist? Yeah, that's, I forgot to say the fieldwork part. I In ethnographic approaches to theology, there's some standard ways of using your fieldwork. And I had been wanting to find a new way to do that. So um, not taking data and reflecting on it, not trying to construct theologies out of it, which is what I did with my first book, but really wanting to weave it into the traditions in a way that gave equal voices isn't, isn't right. I'm not trying to have the two go side by side in an equal way, but almost like a jostling 
and the performance art is doing this as well. It's trying to open up possibilities for the other. And so really disrupting the different ways that people might give authority to these different voices. And so I, I, the voices there in the church come in so many different ways. So that one with the dementia is we were trying to think about God's eternity that night. And one of the people in the class used an image from when she had been on vacation and a friend of a friend was there who was living with dementia and was having this sort of atemporal experience. And I tried to write that into the dissertation and I wasn't ready. It was what this person came up with was more profound than I could handle at that moment. So I sat with it for 10 years and I kept conversing with it for 10 years before I got to this book. And it began to shape for me the way I was understanding my own faith crisis. And I just, it became a part of my prayer life. It became the God to whom I was praying. And so her voice comes into the text that way. I took that image then to a dinner party with a bunch of people from the church and we massaged it and brought a lot more out of it. That's the only time in the book that I'm really using stuff that happened outside the class that I was teaching. But even inside the class, I think people don't maybe realize just how creatively people in churches think and reason their faith and that the dissonances and the pieces that don't fit together are the good of that, not the bad. <laughs> so Catherine Tanner writes about how everyday uh, reasoning of faith is sort of context and um, context specific and ad hoc. It's constantly on the move. And so I was coming in with these academic theologies. Everything I taught in that basement was off my doctoral exams. It was a grand sweep of the big thinkers of Christian history. And I would use my systematic learning of that to talk with the with the people in the room about how the pieces their reasoning don't fit together. But then they were talking to me about how the pieces that don't fit together actually reveal some really incredible undercurrents that are happening in these authoritative Christian traditions. So out of that, we were wrestling honestly something that felt much more spirit-led. It was always open, but using those pieces of life experience, Christian traditions, doctrine, bringing them all together. So their voices in this book, I think, are very disruptive and disrupted because that's what we did in the fieldwork. I see them as collaborators in the project for sure. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Natalie Wig-Stevenson. She teaches theology and directs the contextual education program at Emanuel College in Toronto, Canada. Today we're talking about her recent book, Transgressive Devotion, Theology as Performance Art. In what you just said about the way that this ethnographic research of this class that you taught at First Baptist really helped to inform and in some ways collaborate with the book, it raises questions about where theology happens. And mm -hmm. oftentimes with people with training like you and I have had, we get the sense that we're the experts and we're going into the field moments like this to bring the truth to the benighted masses. <laughs> and what I really like about what you just described is that you found a theology happening from the bottom up where people in their daily lives were taking doctrine as a messy set of ideas and doing their best to weave it together in ways that kind of created narratives for them that functioned. And you do a really great job in, at one point in the book of showing how this is really what Friedrich Schleiermacher was talking about in some of Schleiermacher's work. But none of these folks had read Schleiermacher. They were just doing it naturally. They didn't mm -hmm. need necessarily that expert training. So when we're thinking about this disruption that you're talking about, this disruptive practice, help us 
to understand as listeners how you began to frame that within this methodology, context, analysis of performance art. How was that class in that moment with First Baptist? How was that like some of these transgressive, disruptive mm. performance art pieces that really spoke to you at this other level of the book? Yeah, so it's the kind of research that requires really grappling with your own power in the situation. And I think one way people approach using ethnography and theological research is to say, we need to do this from the bottom up. Like you just said, here's the wisdom from the pews, and we're going to bring it to the academy. Or you then have the academic disposition of, man, everything's all messed up in the pews. (laughs) I got to bring some wisdom to the pews. And I think I increasingly learned in that context and then battled with myself around this of actually there's wisdom and folly on both sides and we actually need each other. And so I was trying to create or construct theology, produce theology in the midst of that tussle. There were moments where things didn't add up for the people at First Baptist or moments that they weren't, they were so used to a certain way of thinking about God that they didn't see how that was causing significant injustice in the community and in the world. And so I definitely wanted to bring resources to bear from my academic training on that. And that good of being able to really point out those implications and draw those together was meaningful in that context. Now, the abstraction of the academy really needs to be able to connect more with the everyday life of faith. And part of what I wanted to get at was how, yeah, how these two really work together. Now, it took me a while to realize the extent to which I thought I was being very communal and collaborative and really sharing power, but with more reflection and growing up a little bit, I realized, I think that I was still using my power in different ways in that space. I had the power to direct the conversations. I had the power to write the book afterwards. And so that's where performance art started coming in is really a helpful metaphor. And I do use it in my first book at the end to try to describe what it was we were doing in the church basement. So not in the text, which is what the second book is, but in the basement. And this idea that the performance artist sets up a work of art where they are managing what's happening in the space. They come in with the idea, they come in with the materials, they lay everything out, but then the artwork can't be done until people show up at the gallery, participate in it, and and thereby create what it's going to be. And the performance artist is making themselves vulnerable to that, but they still also have a lot of power in that. And they're the artist. The other people don't really get named. Very true in an ethnographic study where everyone has pseudonyms. So I began to see that as the way of drawing our community together in a kind of collaboration, but again, under my guidance and care. And I can't pretend that power wasn't there because otherwise I'm just telling you a false story about how good I am at giving up my power, which A, I'm not good at, and B, isn't even really possible in that context. And in transgressive devotion, I want to bring that to the text. So now I'm trying to set up a different form of collaboration between the people at First Baptist, the history of the Christian traditions, queer theories, and then also pushing myself. I was pushing the folks at First Baptist to places they hadn't gone. I'm trying to use things in the book to push myself beyond where I'm comfortable as well. Yeah. So now it's performance art as text rather than as ethnographic fieldwork. And we've mentioned at several points in the conversation that within the space of First Baptist, you were occupying a kind of ambiguity. 
Mm-hmm. And in that space, what you report again and again as you talk about these kind of ethnographic moments where you are collaborating in some kind of disproportionate power relationship with these people in the class, there are times as well where it seemed to me that you utilized some of that ambiguousness about mm-hmm. who you were in that space as a way to try and get the conversation to move in a certain direction. Now, when I perceived that as a reader, am I perceiving accurately or would you have said it in a different way? No, I, you're, yes, that's what I do in the basement, but yes, that's what I do in life. <laughs> when you're, when you're a woman in the academy, especially the theological academy, I mean, there's a whole bunch of aspects to my identity that don't fit the norms of the academy and academic modes of knowledge production. And yeah, that's I'm always deploying those in playful ways and, and holding them back in moments when they need to hold, be held back. I think anyone who embodies different marginalized identities learns to do that if they want to survive within a power structure and if they want to change that power structure. And I know there's competing understandings of this, but for better or for worse, I know that's something that I do, and I was definitely doing it down there, right? I talk about different clothing you can wear to fit in, different clothing you wear to disrupt what you say when you're wearing the clothing that has different disruptive functions. I speak sweetly sometimes, even when someone's really making me angry, (laughs) because that's how I can actually get to keep speaking. I don't like that, but that's how I have to move through the world. You've mentioned at a couple points that you're drawing on what goes by various names, but queer theology, queer theory. You've adopted this as part of your way of maneuvering in these spaces. One of the things that is basic to queer theory is this idea of closeting, this idea that there are times Mm -hmm. when you can choose to disclose or not disclose certain identities. And that is in many ways a powerful disclosure. When I hear you talking about the kind of choice of clothing or the choice of tonal register in your speech, am I right to hear that you were utilizing this idea of closeting in a kind of strategic way, or would you say it in a different way? Yeah, I suppose I haven't thought about it much in relation to queer theory. I've tended to think of it more in relation to some of the critical theory I've used. I have found Michelle de Certeau, who writes about the power from the underside, the power of laughter as disruptive, the the power of the everyman, he calls it, of the reader, not the writer. And so how we can master a system to start flipping pieces of it over. I've tended to think of it more in that space than in the queer theory space. But I think what you're saying certainly resonates. And there's the exhaustion of it, too. We were talking about race earlier and the sort of the there have been contexts in which when people have found out that I'm not white, they've gotten very angry at me because they think, well, what did I just say? How was that offensive? And it happened once as a TA when I was teaching black theology and the students were really against it. And when they found out I was black, they were mad. And so there's, yeah, yeah. So there's this like, oh, I just get tired of explaining it all the time. And so I don't know if that's, I think that's definitely a dynamic of the closet of like, just for goodness sakes I don't need to say this one today but also then feeling like you're betraying your people when you do that it's a lot of emotional stuff if you're just joining us this is things not seen I'm David Dalt our guest today is Dr. Natalie Wig Stevenson she teaches theology and directs the contextual education program at Emmanuel College in Toronto Canada today we're talking about her recent book transgressive devotion theology as performance art we'll be back in a moment
Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Dr. Natalie Wig-Stevenson. She teaches theology and directs the contextual education program at Emmanuel College in Toronto, Canada. Today we're talking about her excellent recent book, Transgressive Devotion, Theology as Performance Art. Well, in your book, Transgressive Devotion, you begin the book and end the book with a performance art piece by Marina Abramovich. And it's a provocative piece in many ways because of the questions it raises, but also because of some of the things that happen during this performance art piece. On the way to talking about the piece itself, I'd love if you could give a quick, maybe two or three sentence overview about what happened in the piece, and then particularly the rules that Abramovich put into place about what the audience and participants in the piece could do. So I wanted to contrast two pieces by her, one that's fairly recent, since she's really uh, gained sort of intense celebrity status as an artist. And that was her 2010 piece, The Artist is Present, where she sat in the middle of a taped square in a chair and people could walk in and sit in the chair opposite her. The rules were you could sit for as long as you wanted, but you couldn't interact with or touch her and then you could leave and the next person could come in. The other artwork, Rhythm Zero, is one she did in the 70s when she was not yet famous. And in that one, she put, I think it was 92 objects on a table, the way she described it, some to bring pleasure, some to bring pain. So among them, feather, honey, scalpel, loaded gun, a whip, a real diversity of pieces on the table. And the participants were told, I think you have six hours and you can do whatever you want with these to me. So you see a real contrast in her earlier work where she's just making herself so vulnerable. And, you know, they cut her body. They did horrific things to her. And then the more recent work where she's gained the celebrity and really needs to be much more protected in the artwork itself. And people argue over who's the real Abramovich, which is the real art. And I think they both are. They hold bookends of a a very fascinating career together for us. That phrase you just used, the real art, I think that gets at what I really want to ask you here, (laughs) because there's that sense, right, that we have when we look at art or when we look at a moment of religious whatever, where we want to get at the realness of it. What did Christ really say? What really happens in the Eucharist? What really happens when someone is praying? We believe that there's some 
extra beyond just what we're given that will somehow authenticate or disauthenticate it. And I think that Abramovich is a wonderful way of trying to get at that question. And so when you think about that question, who's the real Abramovich? Where's the real art? Which is the authentic version of Abramovich's vision? How do you begin to answer those questions? Or do you? Well, yeah. So, I mean, part of the book that we haven't talked about is framed by me trying to perform these different roles in my life as a Christian, an academic theologian, and a minister. And and part of the attempts to get them to cohere and be an authentic me being part of what broke me. And so I kind of want to question the value of authenticity all throughout the book as a very unquestioned value of our time. Authenticity is available to the people who carry the most social privilege because they're not the ones having to move back and forth and code switch in the way that we've already talked about. And so I think for someone like Abramovich, we have to look at the context and say it might not be as daring and exciting, but she's doing something different in her newer work. And there's a gain and a loss in that for sure. But she becomes a bit of an image of the divine in the book of um, we're trying to play, experiment, work with divine vulnerability throughout. And we see what happens when you overstructure the divine, when you place too many rules there. But the alternative's not great either because people cut her. People put her on a table and tried to stab her. When we want to say that's the real art, we're saying something else too. And I wanted to deal with that violence and not pretend it wasn't there either. So I'm not sure I would say, well, I know I definitely wouldn't say one's real and one's authentic. I think we want to ask what really happened. I know the question of what really matters, what arises comes up too. So the difference between what actually happened, what actually matters. And I want to find the question that comes after that. (laughs) What is this doing right now, maybe? Or how is this interacting with something else? What's the web of uh, relationships in which this is making sense differently, depending on where it's getting located? That's what I think is really powerful about performance art. It matters who's there and it matters how it's received. You mentioned that Abramovich at one point in that earlier piece got physically damaged. She got cut. There was trauma that was done to mm-hmm. her body. You also mentioned another performance art piece called Shoot, which is a, mm-hmm. a short filmed piece where two people are interacting. One literally shoots the other person in the arm. And you're asking the question about what are we saying when we say that the performance is really involved in this kind of bodily disruption, this kind of pain infliction, this injury. Mm -hmm. But what I really like about what you're doing in Transgressive Devotion, your book, is that you then flip that and you say, and then when we think about a kind of limit case for performance art, like that crosses the line, what are we saying about the crucifixion? What are we saying about when we insist that God chose to be vulnerable with us to the point where God allowed God's self in some way to be tortured and nailed to a cross? And when we are trying to say that the performance art is only art when it's pretty, what are we doing with the cross? What are we doing with crucifixion? What are we doing with that vulnerability and violence that we have placed in the God narrative? I'd love for you to reflect for a moment with my listeners about how, as you do that juxtaposition and think about that, what have you learned from thinking about the cross from the standpoint of these performance art pieces that are so vulnerable to the point of injury? Yeah, so I... This sort of happened towards the end of the book when I realized I'm a very intuitive writer, which is just a nice way of saying it It takes me a long time to figure out what I'm trying to say. And yeah, it went to publication and I was still figuring stuff out. But I realized towards the end how much I really was grappling with the cross in everything I was doing in that book. And part of it was feeling torn between 
wanting to find ways to reclaim the goods of this charismatic evangelicalism I had come out of and the goods of this sort of liberal theological stuff I had done. But those two are in tension when it comes to the cross. One is like bloody dishonor, really like in the violence is part of what makes me special. The other one is sort of like, well, he was just, he was a political captive. And like, I think both of those have the potential to be true. And I don't want to choose between them. In the last few years, I've really been getting back into Anselm and atonement theory, which has been a real shocker for me. But thinking like, we've thought about this so many ways, and all of them have something to offer to us. And so I wanted to bring to write from the space between those two and, and bring them together, not say one is right and the other's not, but to really grapple with that space between. And an artwork like Chris Burden's shoot allows that because he asked his friend to shoot him. His friend was an expert marksman. He wanted to get shot so that the bullet grazed his skin. And that was going to be really shocking to the audience. <laughs> like, oh my goodness, we've never seen someone get shot before. But the friend missed and shot directly through Burden's arm, which was not what Burden intended and was, you know, not what the audience intended. They were just going to be shocked by a graze. So what I don't want to, what I've tried not to do in this book, and I don't think it's always successful, is just not just reflect on the artworks or have the artworks expose the theology, but let let the artworks tell a story that pulls apart a lot that can contribute to the theology. So that one part is God has made God's self vulnerable to us. Did we go too far? I don't know. What was the motivation of his friend? Was he like a really good friend who's trying, who's showing up to his friend's artwork to participate in it? Or was he like a really bad friend who shot Chris Burden on purpose? We don't know. So there could be you know, all these things going on there that I think speak to us about how God makes God's self vulnerable in the act of us writing theology, not just of coming into the world, but when we try to invoke God through our writing, if that's always what I'm trying to do is to invite, lure God into communion with us through the writing. The writing itself makes God vulnerable. We're, we're marking God's body with the words. And I wanted to, that's where I wanted to write at that location, which is, yes, that's the cross. That's the best image we have for that. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Natalie Wick-Stevenson. She teaches theology and directs the contextual education program at Emmanuel College in Toronto, Canada. We're talking about her recent book, Transgressive Devotion, Theology as Performance Art. So staying with this notion that God has made God's self vulnerable to us in some way, and we have the potential in that relationship of going too far— some of the things that you play with in this question of vulnerability are ideas of consent and even to the point of ideas of safe words, like in the midst of the BDSM, the sadomasochistic community in certain queer communities. And so if we can think about that in terms of theology, there's a sense in which you reflect again and again on Mary's moment of saying yes. And you talk about how, is it possible that Mary could have said no at any point to the incarnation? And what does it mean to say that Mary said yes when the power differential is so great between one party and the other? And so I'd also like my listeners to hear some of your reflection and wrestling with those kinds of questions from a theological level, because 
They may have engaged these on a personal level. They may have engaged these on a level of maybe feminist theory, but maybe they've never heard about this kind of wrestling in an explicitly theological context before. So how can these kinds of questions about consent, about things like safe words in sadomasochistic interactions, how can questions of sexuality themselves help to open up for us these depths of theology that we may not have gotten to or have been blinded to otherwise? Mm-hmm. So I, I had a couple of starting points for that. One was thinking about the fear of God and the terror of God. And again, that was as a charismatic evangelical, that's it. <laughs> that's, you know, and and it's not all bad. This is the God of the universe. So, you know, again, when I sort of moved into progressive Christianity and it's like, well, God is love, God is love, God is love. I'm like, yeah, God is love. But God is also terrifying. And how do we hold those two together? And that's something I personally struggle with. I don't want to pretend that the God of the universe isn't terrifying. I think that God is. I know it in prayer sometimes that I'm scared of what God will call me to do and call me to be. And I think we all talk about that in sort of romantic ways of, oh, God was calling me and I finally consented. I finally submitted. I did whatever that call was. But I wanted to grapple with like how terrifying that can really be. And maybe I'm the only one who finds it terrifying, but I have talked to others who also do as well. And so I didn't want to pretend it wasn't. So again, this is trying to weave this path through. And Mary is, you know, she's the one who got faced with the most terror and the most submission, I think. God showed up to her. And I have never wanted to just metaphorize, that's not a word, the virgin conception. I I don't... Maybe it's just because I went to Catholic school as a child, but I just need to hang on to that one. Um, Even though I know as a good liberal progressive feminist, I'm supposed to just say, no, that's ridiculous, but it does something really important in theological history. And so I don't want to displace that narrative. And then there's this line of theology that I think comes through Sarah Coakley's work in some really beautiful ways, but I want her to go further. And so I was trying to build off of that as well. So she talks about how desire for God and sexual desire are really intimately connected. And she has these lovely little lines, which will say, as anyone who's been on their knees knows. And I'm like, can you go a little further? What do you mean by that? But then she'll have these arcs that I think a lot of, again, progressive feminists will say of, or maybe not so progressive feminists, but we'll have of the bar of, but God isn't beating and battering us. This isn't like a John Donne thing. And I think, well, what if it is a John Donne thing? What if that's what John Donne wanted? And that's why he was consenting to it. What if there's something much more dangerous going on here? You know, when she gets to that point, I want to say, you can't at the end just pull short and say, but, but God is good. God is good. And so it makes all of this submission stuff okay. So I wanted to think about a paradigm in which consent and submission are taken really, really seriously and are structured really, really safely to allow for danger and that the danger becomes uh, deeply relationship building, that it brings you really close together because you're taking such risk together and that the danger is pleasurable. Because if we're going to talk about desire and eros, these are the ways that theologians like to talk about it, right? Desire, eros, not pleasure so much, Um, that which stays at the edges. And so I wanted to bring all of that together to say, what if we have a safe word? Would I feel safer in prayer if I let God take over me, but I still have some agency in that? And I kind of 
test drove it. Like I came to that realization as I was writing and it became a part of my own prayer practice. I entered that space with God to see like, am I just being frivolous with theology here or is there really something here? And so I wanted to really stay in that place, not just with the writing, because as you've read it, you can see my writing can get a little wild sometimes, (laughs) but I wanted to sit with it spiritually as well. I was inspired by the mystics, obviously, but I think they get reclaimed as a empowering sex positive eroticism rather than like these people were beating themselves. They were starving themselves. Like you have to hold the two together. This for me is is part of the brilliance of your book, Transgressive Devotion, because you both go to a thinker like Sarah Coakley and you say, pushing the boundaries of theology, but maybe not dealing with the edges of her own thinking in one sense. But you also, you aren't simply going at the tradition and saying, let's bring theory to the tradition, but you're literally reading the tradition from its own insides out through people like the mystics and the ascetic tradition. And you talk about the connection between the ways in which bondage, domination, sadomasochism draw in some ways from that Christian ascetic tradition as their touchstone. And to me, this was really fantastic because you're not attacking the tradition from the outside. You're really looking at what is there in the tradition if it would only be read. And Mm -hmm. you actually read some of these ascetic mystics with your class there at First Baptist Church. And it was interesting to me as a reader, the ways in which they constructed their own blind spots around the texts, because Mm -hmm. the text was explicitly erotic. It was explicitly transgressive. It was explicitly kind of raising questions of bodily damage and mutilation in some ways, but eroticizing even that in the ecstasy of the divine. And it was really interesting to me how First Baptist readers would blinker that in some ways. And so talk to me about reading the tradition from within the tradition in a transgressive way. Help me to understand that practice. Well, I think that this is where the voices of the First Baptist people become so important because when I'm trying to teach them these mystics and I'm trying to teach them in my 10 years ago, my still like progressive, liberal, sex positive way, I'm trying to open up a conversation about eroticism with the hopes that might lead to more conversations. You know, same sex marriage was a huge deal in 2010. It was all over the news. So I'm trying to open up these conversations about sexuality. And I could do that in the classroom, no problem, because I'll use those words like desire, (laughs) arrows, not pleasure. But once you bring it close to the everyday, it's something else entirely. It's about pleasure all of a sudden. And I was sweating buckets that night. And I was pouring out every euphemism rather than saying the actual words. I became the most awkward mess trying to have this conversation with them, which helped me see the places where I am not as open-minded as I think I am. I'm not as radical and hip as I think I am. I'm actually still someone who sweats when we talk about sex. Um, In fact, yeah, I'm still someone who sweats when we talk about sex. I can write it on the page, but when I got to talk about it with non-academics, it gets really difficult. And so they really showed me how to do that transgression. They really showed me where the transgressive moments that I was struggling with actually were. I feel though like I've gone a bit far afield of your question. Can you remind me of what the middle of it was? Well, so just looking at the ways in which you are using the the core of the tradition, texts from the tradition to try and to bring those that feel like they're safe in the tradition to a place of And I I don't know the word, maybe danger, maybe upsetting of the boundaries, maybe Mm -hmm. in any way that that you'd like to phrase it. How are you using the tradition to upset the tradition itself in those moments? 
Thank you. Yeah. So I think that comes into that place where there's just so many different kinds of voices in this text. And so we're bound by different authority structures in the text. We're bound by different communities, the community that helps shape what's true in that moment. This is another strand in theology that we can talk about. Truth is relative. and But then we have these communities that navigate what becomes true for them. And again, it's I want something between those two. And so the way to get at that is to bring three kinds of voices together, the art, the basement, and the tradition that have different structures of authority and normativity around them, and then let them battle each other's norms, battle, let them converse across their norms, rather than converse across their ideas. And so what becomes norming for them rather than what's normal that's the level of where the conversation is happening. And I think that's where we get, it gets really exciting because the tradition has been written at times when there are different norming structures. So why would we act like it's the same norm across the way? I want to put it in conversation with itself to say, well, here's why, or, and not just why, because Luther was anxious, <laughs> like, but the why, or the, the mystics were anorexic. Like, I don't want to psychoanalyze these thinkers. I want to think, what are the structures of normativity that made them able to say what they could say and then we bring different structures together to try to generate something fresh i guess would be the word for it well dr natalie wig stevenson i will say that when i started your book and i said this earlier in the conversation i was not quite knowing what to expect and along the way i had very bodily reactions to your book in both positive and in some cases negative ways. This is a strong read. And for some of my listeners, it's it may not be what they need at this particular moment. But I will say that for me, it was absolutely what I needed at this moment to make me think about those things that I had in the kind of peripheral vision of my theology and my spirituality, but hadn't quite figured out how to name or begin to question and wrestle with. You really gave me a language that I didn't have before. I think this book, Transgressive Devotion, is so valuable. I think that it'll be valuable for the theological conversations going forward, but I also recognize that it was very valuable to you in your process of writing it. So I want to thank you for the wrestling that you did to create this book, and thank you especially for taking time to talk to us about it today. Oh, thank you. It's been so lovely talking with you. We've been speaking today with Dr. Natalie Wick-Stevenson. She teaches theology and directs the Contextual Education Program at Emanuel College in Toronto, Canada. We've been talking about her recent book, Transgressive Devotion, Theology as Performance Art. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.